We'll say our last opportunity to look together at 2 Corinthians. Can I encourage you to have a Bible open to chapter 12, verse 14? We'll read through to the end of the letter and think about what it means and how it applies to us. Again, do strongly encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you. A few little tricky things in this passage, but I think overall we'll see that the message is quite clear. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us this letter of 2 Corinthians that we've been able to look at together over these last few months. We pray that as we look at this last section that you help us to have a grasp of, of what the whole letter is about and we pray that you'll help us to, to know for sure that we are genuine Christians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 1886. A pharmacist in Atlanta, Georgia, by the name of John Pemberton, created a, a syrup drink flavour. It was placed on sale as a soda fountain drink. And Dr Pemberton's bookkeeper, Frank Robinson, suggested a name for the drink. He suggested that Dr Pemberton call it Coca-Cola. Around seven years later, in 1893, another pharmacist... Caleb Bradham also invented a syrup. He served it in his pharmacy in New Bern, North Carolina. And then in 1898, 12 years after the naming of Coca-Cola, Bradham named his drink. He called it Pepsi-Cola. And so began what became known in advertising circles as the Cola Wars. The Cola Wars. Uh, each of these drinks has been through numerous slogans, numerous advertising campaigns over the years to try to position themselves above the other in terms of market share. One very famous instance was in 1964. 1964, Pepsi began a, a, began a very, very successful advertising campaign. And they used a slogan. The slogan was, Come alive, you're in the Pepsi generation. Come alive. It was an attempt to picture Pepsi as the, the, the hip, modern, with it, new generation drink as compared to that old, staid, old-fashioned Coke. But then in response, in 1969, Coca-Cola came up with a slogan of their own. And this was an attempt to, to show that their drink was the, the original drink, the authentic drink. Uh, rather than being new, it was, the, it was the genuine article. And their slogan, one of the most famous slogans in advertising history, was this. Coca-Cola, it's the real thing. We're talking about sugary drinks. Um, the real thing is a bit of a silly concept when you're talking about a, a sugary drink, but... But the idea of authenticity, of genuineness, that's actually a very important idea, isn't it? Very important to know if, if something is real. And very, very important concept when it comes to Christianity. It is important that we be authentic Christians, that we be Real Christians. We certainly don't want to make the mistake of thinking that we're real Christians when in fact we are not. Some of the most scary words in the Bible, I think, are the words of Jesus, where he says, he pictures Judgment Day, and he says, Many people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff for you? And he will say on that day, I never knew you. Go away from me. So important that we know whether or not we are the real thing as Christians. So how can you know? 
How can you know what are the, what are the tests? What are the what are the KPIs for determining whether you're a true Christian? How do you know? Well, as we come into our last talk on two Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul calls on the Corinthians to work out for themselves: Are they the genuine article? As we come into the last uh, chapter, let's just remember a bit of the history between Paul and the Corinthians. Uh, Paul has been to Corinth a couple of times before. First time he went, he went on a missionary visit. He stayed for about a year and a half in Corinth. He shared the gospel with them week by week and built up a church in Corinth. Uh, Later on, when Paul went off on another mission trip, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians uh, to encourage them, to correct them, to deal with a whole heap of stuff that he'd found out was going on in the church, division and sin. And we call that letter, we've got that letter, we call it 1 Corinthians. It's in our New Testaments. After he'd written 1 Corinthians, Paul then visited Corinth for a second time. But it went really badly. There was a man in the church, he was involved in open public sin and Paul called on the church to discipline him but for whatever reason because he was rich and influential or something like that the 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 church refused to do what Paul said they didn't support him and so rather than returning a third time to Corinth as Paul originally had planned to do instead he wrote them another letter now unfortunately or maybe fortunately we don't have this letter because it seems like it was a very severe letter a letter of very severe rebuke to the church and uh Before he wrote 2 Corinthians, Paul was very worried. He was very worried about what the effect of this letter would be on the Corinthian church. He was concerned that maybe they'd just give up on him altogether. But then what happened is he sent his friend Titus to to check out what was happening in Corinth. And just before he wrote the letter, Titus had returned. Returned to Paul and said, it's okay. They still love you. They're still trusting Jesus. They disciplined the sinful man. They were really sorry. And, and, and he also repented. But Titus also raises a few issues that are happening in the Corinthian church. There's still a few sinful things going on, division going on. There's also an issue with a collection that they promised to deal with. And there are also these super apostles. Super apostles. We've been thinking about them over the last few weeks. You might call them Pepsi Christians. Okay, they say, Paul... His message, it's old, it's stale. Come on, Corinthians, get with it. Come alive, you're in the super apostle generation. Leave Paul behind, join up with us, we're the new thing. And so Paul has written this letter of 2 Corinthians. Let's think back briefly over the letter. Our first six chapters, Paul talks about why it is that he would be so bold, so bold as to discipline the church, so bold as to write them letters, so bold as to keep on correcting them and rebuking them and calling on them to trust Jesus, because for Paul that meant terrible suffering. We've seen some of the awful things that happened to Paul, whipped and tortured and stoned and shipwrecked. Terrible things happened to Paul, but yet he kept on boldly calling on everyone to trust Jesus. Why did he do that? That's what the first, first six chapters are about. And as we look through those chapters together, we try to take all of Paul's reasons and to apply them to ourselves as reasons why we should be bold as well. We even made actions for it. Now, if you've got a script, please close the script and put it down. Close the script and put it down. Because I'm wondering if anyone can remember our actions. No cheating, please, with this script. All right? I wonder if anyone can remember our actions. I want to give you maybe one or two minutes. Turn to each other. See if you can remember the uh, actions. If somebody's new, tell them all about it. See if you can remember, and see if you can remember what they meant. 
and what they meant from the, from the, from the chapters. Okay, let's go. About a minute. Okay, how'd you go? I'm seeing lots of actions. Very good. Well done. Well done. Let's see if we can do it together. Okay, remember we talked about being a durian for Jesus because Paul's like an aroma of death and, and, and life to people who've received the gospel who don't. So I should be like a durian for Jesus because, can you remember, it's about God's message and not me and because I'm gripped by the glory of the gospel and because God is the one who saves and because I'm long-sighted and because I have a house before me and because I'm an ambassador. Well done, well done. There you go. I actually need to look it up myself, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> that was the first six chapters. Why is Paul so bold, even when it means suffering? And in chapters uh, six and seven, Paul, he, he thanks God that the Corinthians responded so well to his letter with godly sorrow, and he calls on them again. Don't be yoked with unbelievers. Don't get involved in idolatry. Be different because of Jesus. Uh, then chapters 8 to 9, Paul deals with another thing that Titus has told him. Um, when Paul had been there before, the Corinthians had made these great promises to be part of the collection for the Jewish Christians, the poor Jewish Christians. Uh, but Paul's come back to, to, uh, Titus has come back to Paul and said, well, they made big promises, but they're not ready. It's going to be embarrassing when we get there. And so Paul writes to them, uh, chapters 8 to 9, to say, be prepared, be prepared and be generous. And then chapters 10 to 12, Paul's been addressing this issue of the super apostles. He says they, they might look good, but they're false teachers. They're tricky, they're dangerous, they're servants of Satan. And so Paul calls on the Corinthians to, to trust him, to, to trust the original message about Jesus, to, to, to stick with the original Jesus. So here in his letter, Paul, he, he's shown that he's more of a Coca-Cola Christian. He might not have the pizzazz, he might not be the latest thing, he might be facing all kinds of trouble and persecution and rejection, but what he does have is the original, authentic message about Jesus. Unlike the super apostles, Paul is the real thing. The real thing. So now, uh, last section. Last section. Paul starts off this final section by reminding the Corinthians that he's coming to visit them again. He's told them a few times, but he's coming. He's coming to visit them. And he says, first thing he says is, he says he's not going to be accepting any money from them. I'm not going to take your money, he says, because it's not your money that I want. I want you for Jesus. He says, I'm like a dad to you. I don't care about your money. I want you to trust Jesus and live for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14. Have a look with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14. Now, I'm ready to visit you for the third time. And I'll not be a burden to you. Because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I'll very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Paul has not accepted money from the Corinthians and he will not accept money from the Corinthians. And that collection that Titus and the brother are taking up for the Jewish Christians, that's not some trick. To, to get money for Paul that he's going to take a commission or something. No, 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 the collection is for the Jerusalem church. It's verse 16. Be that as it may, I, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, and I think this should be in quotes, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. I think this is something perhaps the super apostles are saying about Paul. Yeah, yeah, he didn't ask you for money directly, but what was that whole collection thing about, hey? Something like that. I, I caught you by trickery, did I? Well, Paul responds, verse 17. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? 
I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? And then Paul picks up on this idea that he's been criticising the super apostles and defending himself. He says, I'm not trying to defend myself because I want to be popular with you. He says, no, 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 you need to trust me because I'm the one telling you the truth about Jesus. I'm saying all this to strengthen you in Christ. Verse 19. You've been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Paul's coming to visit. He wants them to be ready. He's not going to be a burden. He wants them for the Lord Jesus. But he's a bit worried. He's worried that some of the stuff he addressed way back in his first letter will still be issues in Corinth. There'll still be divisions. There'll still be sin and strife. Verse 20, for I'm afraid, verse 20, that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. Because, of course, they became Christians through him, and if they're messing up, that's going to humiliate Paul. God will humble me before you, and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they've indulged. Paul says, when I come, I might have to come down hard on you. Uh, I might have to even institute formal processes of discipline with witnesses and everything. This is not what I want to do. I'd much rather be meek and gentle with you. But don't mistake meekness for weakness. If he needs to, for the sake of the Lord Jesus, Paul will go hard. Chapter 13 and verse 1. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. And now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but he's powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. Paul will come down hard if he needs to, but it's not what he wants to do. So he says, how do, how do you prepare? How do you prepare for him to come and visit? He says, what I want you to do is this. I want you to examine yourselves. I want you to test yourselves. I want you to think very carefully, are you a genuine Christian? Are you the real thing? And if you are, which he assumes that they are, then they'll have to admit that he is a true apostle. They, came, they became Christians through Paul, so if they're real Christians, then he must be a real apostle. And so they need to do what he says in his letter. The Corinthians need to examine themselves. If they're the real thing, then Paul must be the real thing. If that's true, they need to obey what he's saying in his letter. Verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? The Lord Jesus is in you. Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust you'll discover that we have not failed the test. 
Paul wants the Corinthians to listen to his letter, to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their strife. If that means he doesn't come and have to be a big, impressive apostle, he doesn't care. He'd much rather, even if he looks weak, he'd much rather that they just trust Jesus and live for him. And that way when he visits, he'll just be able to encourage them rather than be the big bossy apostle. Verse 7. Now, we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I'm absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. And so Paul gives his final summary. He says, rejoice in the Lord Jesus and strive to be his united people. Verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, there are greetings, verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And verse 13, all God's people here send their greetings. And then Paul finishes with this wonderful and powerful prayer, a prayer to God, Father, Son, and Spirit, a Trinitarian prayer, a prayer that God's, um, that, 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 that the grace of Jesus would be with them, this free gift of salvation, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would unite them together as Jesus' true people. Verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, congratulations. You made it to the end of 2 Corinthians. It wasn't the easiest book we've ever done together, was it? But uh, full of glorious riches. You see what's here in this last section? Again, it's a little complicated, but if you break it all down, it's pretty simple. Paul's coming to visit. Paul is coming to visit. Not because he wants their money, because he wants them to trust and serve the Lord Jesus. He's worried, though, will there still be divisions in the church? Will there be immorality in the church? When he comes, he'll deal with it, if necessary, but he'd rather not have to. He'd rather that they just listen to his letter, sort themselves out, and so he calls on themselves. He calls on them to examine themselves. Are they the real thing? Are they genuine Christians? If they are, then they need to realise that Paul is a true teacher. And they need to do what he says in his letter. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Give as they should to the collection and turn away from sin and be united together as Jesus' people. All right. Well, well let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. Now, to do that, I want us to come back to the question that we asked at the beginning. It's the same question Paul is calling on the Corinthians to, to ask themselves. Here's the question. Are you the real thing? Are you a genuine Christian? So how would you know? Well, this passage gives us some very helpful tests. Very helpful tests as we ask ourselves that question. Let me express it as three tests. Test to see if we're the, the real thing as Christians. Test to see if we're Coca-Cola Christians. Test number one is this. Am I relying on Jesus? Am I relying on Jesus? Test number two. Am I repenting of sin? And test number three, am I striving for unity with God's people? Relying on Jesus, repenting of sin, 
striving for unity with God's people. Let me, let me think a bit more about each of these tests. Test number one, am I relying on Jesus? Are you in the faith? Is, uh, is Christ Jesus in you, to quote Paul in this passage? How can you know? How can you know the result of that test? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions that might help you. I know I've asked these questions lots of times before, but I still think that they're very helpful questions. So I'm going to ask questions. I don't want you to answer out loud, please, because then everybody around you will think they got the right answer by listening to you. I want everyone just to think. But do answer the question. Don't just go, oh, yeah, whatever, blah, blah, I'll wait. No, no, no. I want you to answer the question in your own mind. Okay, you ready? It's two questions. First question, just silently. Here's the question. Are you sure that you're going to heaven? If you died now, are you certain that you would go to heaven? Let me give you a couple of seconds to think about it. Are you sure you're going to heaven? Got your answer in your head? Don't cheat. You got the answer? Okay, second question. Imagine you were to die right now. Someone drops a bomb on Chatswood Presbyterian Church, and we all die. And you find yourself standing before God. And God says to you, here's heaven. It's perfect. Nobody ever does anything wrong here in heaven. There's no sin. There's no evil. There's no wickedness. There's nothing bad. Why should I let you in? How would you answer that question? Why should God let you into heaven? Again, let me give you a couple of seconds to think about it. Why should God let you into heaven? Got an answer in your head? Got an answer in your head? Don't cheat. Okay. You got an answer in your head? Why should God let you into heaven? Now, most people, if you ask them the first question, are you sure you're going to heaven, they will give this answer. Let me see if this was your answer. They will say, I hope so. I hope so. And then if you ask the second question, Why should God let you into heaven? Their answer will start with these two words. Let me see if you started with these two words. Their answer will start with these two words. Because I. Because I. Because I've tried to be good. Because I've never done anything really bad. Because I've gone to church because I am a Presbyterian, because I believe in God, because I... Uh, the thing is, this question, it reveals what you're relying on. And if that second word is I, because I, well, that's, that's pretty dangerous because it shows that you are relying on you, your goodness, your religion, your faith, your Presbyterianism. And if if we're honest, the fact is we're not that reliable. Our good works, they come and go. Our faith, they come and go. and, And so the best we could ever do, if we're relying on ourselves, is hope for the best. Hope that God will let us into heaven. We'll never have any certainty about it, and that's why our answer to the first question will be, I hope so. But if you're relying on Jesus, then your answer to these questions will be different. It should be. Your answer to the second question will start with these words. Why should God let me into heaven? Because Jesus. 
Because Jesus lived and died and rose again from the dead for me. Because Jesus is seated at God's right hand as my saviour, pleading, praying that I will be accepted into heaven. Because Jesus has forgiven me. Because Jesus has cleansed me. Because Jesus has made me acceptable before heaven. I can be in heaven because of Jesus. And so you want to ask me, am I sure that I'm going to heaven? Well, the answer is, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus reliable? And the answer is yes. My faith, my works, they chop and change. They're up and down, but Jesus doesn't change. Am I sure I'm going to heaven? Absolutely. Jesus has done everything I need. By the grace of Jesus, heaven is mine. Okay. That was test number one. How do you know if you're a real Christian? Are you relying on Jesus? How'd you go with that one? Thing is, though... You can say that you're relying on Jesus till you're blue in the face. You can say, Lord, Lord. You can give the right answer to those two questions. But if you're asking Jesus to save you and give you a place in his eternal kingdom, you're asking Jesus to be your king, your boss. Relying on Jesus means relying on him as your Lord. He saves you as a free gift. He saves you by grace alone. But he saves you to be his person who turns away from sin and lives for him. And so that leads to the second test. The test is this. Am I repenting of sin? Are you different because you're a Christian? Are you turning away from lies and Greed and malice? Are you turning away from lust and sexual impurity? Is Jesus your Lord as well as your Saviour? Is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with you? I'm not asking if you're perfect, of course you're not, but are you different? I have to say, I was really encouraged by our Bible study this week. I didn't plan this as I wrote the Bible study, but it worked really well because the introductory question was how would you be different if you weren't a Christian? And we, just, we talked about it and everybody thought they were going to be completely different. If, if they weren't Christians, not only would their Sunday morning be different, but everything would be different right through their lives. And then we worked right through the study and then we, we, we sort of thought about, are we genuine Christians? And we thought about, are we relying on Jesus? And then we asked, the, asked ourselves, well, has he made any difference to our lives? And we went, well, we already talked about it at the beginning and he's made every difference. We're not relying on that. We're not relying on our being different, but it's good evidence it's good evidence that jesus is real in our lives that's test number two is your faith in jesus and in his grace leading you to repentance brings us to the final test am i striving for unity with god's people Uh, jesus doesn't just save us by himself by ourselves Um, The Holy Spirit doesn't just grant us fellowship with God as individuals. No, no, it says it in the last verse there. The fellowship that the Holy Spirit gives us is with us all, with us all. Did you say that? We're, We're united. That is who we are as Christians, united together in the body of Christ. And the question is, is that a real thing for you? And are you striving to maintain that unity? As Paul said there, chapter 13, verse 11, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. Do you have a a, a sense of your unity with God's people? Do do you have a a connection, an empathy, a, a sympathy for God's church? Or are you one of the people who just 
complains about all the hypocrites? Are you meeting regularly with God's people? Good on you for being here today. Are you serving God's people? Are you trying to get rid of the stuff that Paul talks about in verse 20 there? Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder, all those, all those things that destroy unity within God's church. I often hear people, and particularly after COVID, I often hear people say that they don't, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, they'll say. In one sense, that's right. Being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. But in another sense, it's it's profoundly wrong. Jesus saves you into his church. There's nowhere else for him to save you. He saves you into his church. He unites you with other Christians. And if you ignore that unity, if you reject that unity, you deny who you are. We need to strive for unity with God's people. Did you get the three tests? Three tests that help you know if you're the real thing. Test number one was, are you relying on Jesus? Test number two, are you repenting of sin, turning away from sin? Test number three, are you striving for unity with God's people? How'd you go? Did you pass the tests? Are you a Coca-Cola Christian? Are you the real thing? I wonder, if you're a person who thought you were a Christian and now you're not sure, make sure you talk to me or talk to somebody about it. I hope and pray that we are the real thing. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he has done everything it takes for us to be your saved, beloved children. Thanks that his life, death and resurrection cleanses us from all sin. Thank you that he is seated at your right hand, pleading for us and, and ensuring that we will have a place in heaven. So Father, help us to rely on him and help us with Jesus as our Lord, to turn away from sin and to, to love his people. Strengthen us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.